Good evening, and thank you for tuning in to Bring It On. Before we get underway, just want to let you know that the topic matter discussed is sensitive and may not be suitable for young listening audiences. Again, thanks for tuning in to Bring It On, and let's get underway. Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Liz Mitchell, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio show in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And good evening, I'm Clarence Boone. On August 7th, 1930, James Cameron Jr., Thomas Shipp, and Abram Smith were lynched in Marion, Indiana. Initially charged with robbery, murder, and rape, Ship and Smith died. But miraculously, with the rope already around his neck, Cameron was saved. He was tried and convicted as an accessory to murder and spent five years in prison. In the 1940s, Cameron founded three chapters of the NAACP and later served as Indiana's state director of the Office of Civil Liberties. In 1988, he founded America's Black Holocaust Museum in Milwaukee. Data indicates that there have been 21 reported lynchings in Indiana's history, and Cameron is thought to be the only known survivor of a lynching attempt in the United States. Leon Bates is a PhD candidate in the Department of Pan-African Studies at the University of Louisville, Kentucky. He focuses on urban history, example, um, education, housing, labor, medicine, policing, violence, and he also focuses on the intersection of race. Leon has conducted extensive research on racialized violence. In particularly, he is focused on lynchings in Indiana. He joins us now to discuss his findings. Leon, welcome to Bring It On. We're so glad to have you on this show. Thanks for having me. And Leon, I hope uh, I got the introduction correct in that PhD candidate, and or perhaps I'd be saying Dr. Bates. No, I'm not a doctor yet. In fact, I'm working to get to candidacy. I'm still a PhD student. Candidacy is my next step, which I hope to achieve in the next 12 months. All right. Um, What's for you? I'm going to just say in advance. Thank you, Dr. Bates. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. As our description um, uh, depicted, it, this is a sobering conversation we're about to have, but it, you know, we, we don't shy away from hard discussions. And we talked about a gentleman who survived a lynching in, of all places, Marion, Indiana, and by all accounts was uh, noted to be the only survivor of a lynching. Uh, mm-hmm. And it makes you wonder, in, in 21 reported lynchings in Indiana's history, and he's the sole survivor. Now, uh, Leon, you have researched this. And if you would like to take a moment and maybe share with us how you became interested in such a topic. 
oh man, I'm not sure how I finally got to where I am now, but um, I am a uh, non-traditional college student, if you will. In other words, I had a life before I went back to college. I was a commercial industrial electrician. And then uh, when the economy got bad in 2007, I went to find something else to do. And I really started looking at policing in Indianapolis because the first African-American police officer killed in Indiana was killed in the alley behind where I live today in 1922. And that's kind of how all the research into violence and lynching and everything got started. And then when I really got into lynching, I guess it was probably at the, uh, the provocation of a professor who asked a question about it and told me that, you know, you need to know more about the lynching side because you have quite a bit on the policing side. And I just started looking, asking questions. And of course, Chip and Smith that you mentioned earlier are probably the most uh, well-known in Indiana. That was in 1930, but there were um, somewhere between 12 and 18 before that. Uh, the numbers vary depending on who you talk to and what you are looking for. And uh, new people are being added to the list as people research different parts of the state. That's probably the best description of how I got to where I am with it now. And as a, not a disclaimer, but it is cited as 21 reported. Lynch. Yeah, 21 known reported. Known, exactly. reported. Known. And, yeah. and lynching as a form of um, psychological um, control, vigilante justice, or mm -hmm. just keeping people in a certain mindset. All of the above. And you have to keep in mind that vigilante justice and lynching are two different concepts. Um, lynching is more spontaneous and it's usually just a emotional outburst by a crowd where vigilante justice is more uh, performative. It happens over a longer period of time. And there's this sense of the people in the crowd that what they are doing is correct and proper. And Smith and Schiff are a good example of a uh, vigilante justice type thing because they have photographs of those people in the crowd who are clearly standing there looking into the camera with no fear, no shame. You know, they think they have done the right thing. Where lynching quite often can be something has happened, the crowd emotionally goes into doing something they know it clearly is wrong but it's not thought out, it's not planned, it's just a spur of the moment type thing. Both are wrong and both are used typically by the majority population against a minority population as a form of, as you said, social control. Um, legality has little to do with it. It is the perceived the perception that they're doing the right thing is what drives it. When you are researching these lynchings, are you re researching the lynching solely of of African-Americans in Indiana, or it doesn't matter, just whoever's getting lynched? It really doesn't matter. Uh, for example, there was a vigilante lynching in the 1850s in uh, the county north of Allen County, as you're going across the Michigan state line. And I've forgotten that county name now, but long story short, that was a white man who was a, a victim of a vigilante type lynching, where he was accused of stealing horses, stealing farm equipment over a long period of time. And they caught up with him, um, took him back to town, held him in a hotel, sent someone to get his wife and let him spend time with his wife. 
And then the next day, they took him to the town square and hung him on the town square. And there was a parade. Uh, I mean, the people who participated in the lynching, the active members lined up two by two on horses and paraded in front of this man who was forced to sit on a wagon, sit on his own coffin in a wagon and ride to the town square and was hanged. And everyone in town was there. Everyone saw it. And the people who witnessed it did nothing to stop it and then did nothing about it after it was over with. And this was a white man they did it to. Mm -hmm. So I've researched both. Most of the ones that I've looked at have been African-Americans. In fact, most of the ones in the record, I believe, are African-Americans. The other probably well-known or best-known whites that were lynched in Indiana would be the Reno brothers that were lynched um, outside of Seymour, Indiana. Um, I've forgotten now when that was. It was in the 1850s, 1860s, I believe. Um, there were four or five brothers who made a uh, career out of robbing banks and trains and so on and so forth. And the locals finally got tired of them. And eventually they were captured somewhere and being brought back to Seymour when the locals stopped the train, took them off the train, and they were hanged on the side of the road. And the Reno brothers were a group of white brothers born and bred in uh, Seymour, Indiana. Oh, this hung them right then and there. Yes, right on the side of the road. Did anybody have any remorse about the lynchings at all? Uh, uh, for the most part, there doesn't seem to be a lot of lynching, or excuse me, a lot of uh, remorse behind the lynching. What is interesting is over time, there seems to be a level of shame that communities seem to take on and it's not talked about. It's not, you know, uh, it's not in most of the local histories. You can find locals who know about it. And if you go into the libraries and you start digging into the old newspapers, you can find where they're often written about and written plainly about what happened. Sometimes they even describe who was involved in it. Uh, in the case of Abraham, or excuse me, of Shippen Smith, um, there was a lady in Marion by the name of Flossie Bailey, if I remember correctly, who was sending almost daily dispatches to the NAACP office, the main office in New York. And she was naming people that were involved. Um, she named the sheriff and the deputies who stood aside and let these people into the jail to take them out. Um, but no one, no one bothered to do anything. In your research, was there a lynching in downtown Indianapolis? Oh, yes. Um, and one thing I want to say before we get into that is we need to understand what lynching means. And lynching, most of the time, is thought of as taking a rope and hanging someone by the neck. But lynching can be flogging, beating, whipping. Uh, tar and feathering, any kind of torture like that, or the threat of doing something like this, which is anything up to including actually killing someone. So with that said, there was a lynching in 1845 in downtown Indianapolis at Illinois and Washington Street. Um, People familiar with Indianapolis, I'm basically talking the northwest corner of Illinois and Washington today that is where the Weber Grill and the Panera Bread are located in that large uh, Claypool Hotel building. Mm-hmm. And uh, the man's name was John Tucker. And Tucker was beaten in the, beaten to death in the middle of Illinois Street, just north of Washington, about two, three o'clock in the afternoon on July 4th, 1845. And there were somewhere close to 100 onlookers who watched it happen, but no one tried to stop it. What was he accused of doing? That's the interesting thing. When you start looking into lynchings, most of them fall into two categories. Either they're accused of a crime 
or they are heat of the moment passion type thing. In the case of John Tucker, um, he hadn't been accused of doing anything. The Tucker was walking home from what's today Military Park, which is at uh, excuse me, it is at West in New York mm-hmm. Street. It's a large park on the side of the, at the end of the IUPUI campus. And they were having the 4th of July celebration in the park. And Tucker was on his way home walking west on Washington Street when he got to Illinois to turn the corner north to head home. And that at the time was the Bates House Hotel. It was in no relation. It was a large hotel there on the corner. And the first floor of the hotel had stores and shops a lot like the Claypool does today. And one of the shops was a store and it was an open front store where you could, uh, they opened large windows or opened the doors. You could see in, you could walk in and out. And long story short, a, there were also some bars and three men, um, Nicholas Wood, uh, William Ballinger and uh, Davis, I've forgotten man, third man's first name, but Davis Ballinger and Wood confronted um, John Tucker on the street and Wood hit Tucker in the face and bloodied his nose. And then he ran into one of the shops and Tucker stood on the sidewalk and dared him to come back into the street and uh, challenged him for hitting him. And there were lots of words exchanged and eventually uh, Wood came out onto the sidewalk and a brawl ensued and Tucker, excuse me, um, Wood, Davis, and Ballinger had been drinking and were pretty inebriated when all this started. John Tucker, on the other hand, had not been drinking and was a farmhand for the man who later became mayor of Indianapolis, but at the time he was kind of a gentleman farmer and the postmaster. And he employed John Tucker and his wife and two children to work on his farm and gave him a place to live on the farm. So Tucker's a pretty, uh, he's a pretty stout guy. And he's not drunk, he's sober. So he's getting the best of this fight. And Woods, two compatriots, uh, finally separated them when Tucker started giving the upper hand and had Wood down on the on the street. They separated them. Uh, more words were exchanged. And then someone told Tucker that he should uh, probably leave and go to the uh, magistrate and file charges against Wood for hitting him. I some point, they were back at it again, brawling in the street. They were separated again. The fight is starting to move north up Illinois Street, and they separated them a second time. And at that point, that's when uh, Wood, after he has clearly been losing the fight, decides that he can't lose this fight. He starts looking for a weapon. And there were several wagon and carriage shops along Illinois and, and Washington Street, and one of them had a couple of barrels in front of it that had uh, wagon wheel parts, uh, wheel spokes. And they also had what's known as a swingle tree. And a swingle tree is a piece of uh, lumber that goes into the harness mechanism between Mm -hmm. a horse and a carriage. And it's what allows the traces and the other mechanisms to move laterally so that they don't rub sores onto the shoulders of the horse. So it's a necessary piece, but it's also a large and heavy piece of lumber. It's about three and a half, four feet long and probably, oh, I don't know, two, two and a half inches diameter. It's kind of an oval shape, but that's the best I can describe it. And anyway, it's believed he picked a swingle tree up and uh, he came up behind um, John Tucker. As Tucker standing on the street confronting Davis and Ballinger, 
Uh, and but at this point, they're throwing rocks, bricks, sticks, you name it. And John Tucker is kind of in a uh, semicircle. And people were telling him to leave, and he tried to leave, but he kept throwing rocks and sticks at him. So he started throwing rocks and sticks back. And at one point, I think it was Davis picked up a uh, brick or what they in the newspaper called a brick bat, which is a piece of a brick, flat piece of a brick. And he threw that and hit Tucker in the back of the head with that brick bat. And one of the witnesses testified that you could hear the lick when he hit him in the head with it from 50 yards. So he hit him, you know, really hard. And it buckled Tucker's knees, but he didn't fall. And this continued. And at that point, uh, that's when Nicholas Wood came up behind him and blindsided him with that swingle tree. And he hit him once and he collapsed to his knees. And as he started to fall and hit the ground again, um, Wood hit him a second time with the swingle tree. And the second time he hit him, he did not get back up. At some point, someone went to get the uh, Marion County Sheriff to uh, report what had happened. And by the time the sheriff and his deputies got there, John Tucker was face down the street, uh, dead from several blows to the head. And quite a few people in this crowd did give testimony as to what happened, what they saw. And uh, eventually, one of the men disappeared. He fled the city and never came back. That would have been Ballinger. Davis uh, stood trial. He was arrested, stood trial, and Davis was gotten off on a technicality something to do with the way the evidence and the arguments were being preceded in court. Mike Wetzer. That uh, he got off. Wood was convicted and he served three years in the Indiana State Prison at the time it was in Jeffersonville, Indiana, and then got out of the prison and came back, which is, you know, in some ways just kind of amazing that he would pick a fight, fight this man in the street, and then because he's losing, pick up a large object and beat him with it. And the best they came up with was manslaughter in three years. Well, then I'm assuming the three men were white and Tucker was black. Yes, I apologize. All three men were white. John Tucker was black, he's an African-American. He was a, uh, a uh, former slave from Kentucky who had somehow managed to buy his freedom and come to Indiana and had been in Indianapolis in 1845. Indianapolis was still a small town, was still new. Indianapolis did not become a city, or let me back up, a town, nor the capital of Indiana until 1821. And then the state moved the capital here in 1824. And when the state moved the capital here, it was still a small town. And in fact, Indiana technically was still on the Western frontier in 1845 because the only way to get here was on horseback, in some type of a wagon, or uh, to walk. The White River, you could not navigate with a boat. Um, the trains did not arrive in Indiana until 1847. So technically, Indianapolis was still on the western frontier when this happened. And it was depicted as a cow town, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yes, and part of that, more so, more so than cows, was pigs. On the White River, there were several uh, meatpacking houses, and their primary export was pork. So Indianapolis had more pork than it did beef. So it was a agricultural town, but more, more than cows, they had pigs. You know, as you were describing that account, um, it was riveting enough that I could envision I could see that happening. And not only back then, but it even happens now. I mean, I think of uh, the legislation that was signed 
for making Juneteenth a federal holiday. In large part was when George Floyd uh, was executed live on TV with someone's knee in his neck. And that does fit the, uh, the definition, of, in my opinion, of a lynching um, that, that took place in modern day. And, and yeah, course, another thing about lynchings I neglected to mention was that you need three, at least three or more people to be involved. If it's just one-on-one or you know, two people, it's one thing. But when you have three or more, that starts to become a mob. And you have to have a mob in order to have a lynching or even to have a uh, vigilante-type killing. It's a different dynamic that goes into the discussion of it. And you definitely had three participants, but then when you read some of the accounts, there were other spectators that were accused of either cheering on this violence or participated by throwing bricks and rocks while this is going on. So it's not just the three participants who are throwing rocks. You got others standing in the crowd that are participating in this throwing rocks at, at John Tucker. Um, and from all accounts, Tucker was a law-abiding citizen. He had never bothered anyone. He wasn't bothering anyone the day that this happened. No one really knows what started it other than he encountered three men who'd been drinking and they challenged him on the street and he stood his ground and for standing his ground, he was killed. You know, sort of falls in under that uh, explanation of boys will be boys. I think it's kind of how they tried to portray it in the, uh, the trial. Um, there was some type of bad blood between the two or between the, the group of men, Tucker and, and the others. Or that, you know, it just got out of hand, boys will be boys, the others have been drinking. All those things, you know, were brought up and tried to be used as an excuse. But the one thing that was also brought up is that these three men, along with several others in the crowd, were known to be um, rowdy, you know, um, revelers, if you will. Rowdy, uh, uh, rowdy drunks. They would get drunk, they would get, get uh, obnoxious, get violent. And one of the men who was in the crowd was a man named Dave Burkett. And Burkhart had uh, had several run-ins with the police, several run-ins with the African-American community. And by his own accounts, he said that he had been a slave driver at one point before coming to Indianapolis. And uh, he uh, had a lot of animosity toward the black community. And one night before this incident, he had a run-in with another African-American resident by the name of James Overall. And Burkhart and his... Uh, compatriots called themselves the chain gang. And the chain gang had James Overall and his family uh, locked into their house at night, fearing to come out and fearing that they were gonna be broken in on. And Overall was a man who was known to stand his ground. And at the time this happened, I think it was in the 1830s, Overall could read and write, which was very unusual for an African-American at that time to be able to read and write. And we're not sure how he got his education or where he actually came from. He came to Indiana in 1816 when the state uh, Indiana was becoming a state, and he came through Corden with several of the other whites, but where he was before that, we just don't know. But he had several teenage or 20-year-old sons by the time this happened, and they stood their ground that night and Overall told them more than once not to come any closer to his house. Finally, James Overall shot Dave Burkert out of the saddle of his horse. Mm. And finally, when the sun came up, he had one of his sons run to the home of Calvin Fletcher, which most people growing up in Indianapolis have heard of Calvin Fletcher. Fletcher was an attorney. He was white. He was, I believe, born and raised in Connecticut and came to Indianapolis in the 1820s and was one of the first practicing attorneys in Indianapolis. And uh, um, um, I just lost it. James Overall's son went to Calvin Fletcher's home 
at sunrise and told him he needed to come to his house, his father's house right away, that his father had shot a white man. And uh, Fletcher came to the house, met with him. And then Calvin Fletcher actually took his case and got, which is very unusual, got his uh, story on the legal record in court. And James Overall was allowed to testify in court. And the court sided with Overall that he did have the right to defend himself. So now you have an early 19th century African-American who shoots a white man and is allowed to um, go about his business. He said he was threatened. He was defending himself. Why they didn't come back after James Overall, we'll never know, but they did not. Uh, I'm sure he probably looked over his shoulder the rest of the time he's in Indianapolis, but he did legally get his case heard in court. Wow. So, yeah. Um, That's Yes, it's very unusual, but you don't hear these stories growing up here. They're not in history books. You stumble across them a lot of times, like I do, looking for something else, and then you find this story, or you find the story of James Overall, or you find, uh, we're talking 19th century. There was a 20th century lynching in Indianapolis in 1922. This is eight years before the Marion lynching of Smith and Ship. And here again, this one is not in the history books. It's not talked about. The young man's name was uh, George Tompkins. And George Tompkins was found tied to a sapling in what is now um, part of the golf course over there off of Lafayette Road and Cold Springs Road behind where the Municipal Gardens building is now. Yes. Well, when 1922, the, the golf course had not been built and it was just, they described it as a woods and the Parks Department kind of used it as a, uh, area to grow uh, trees, to plant in other parks and, and store equipment materials. And a man walking down Lafayette Road one afternoon in March, 1922, spotted uh, George Tompkins' body. And then he ran to, there was a uh, yacht club, they called it, on White River, right there just north of 16th Street. He ran there and got someone's attention, got on the phone, called the police. And the police department showed up pretty quickly. And it's noted in the newspaper that his body was still warm when the police got there. The investigation eventually showed that Tompkins left home around 7, 38 o'clock in the morning and was found sometime just after noon. But in those four hours, no one knew where he went and what happened to him until he was found tied to the sapling. And what's interesting about what happened to George Tompkins is that um, Typically when a person is lynched, like in the case of Smith and Ship and others, it's done most often in the daytime, it, or quite often in the daytime, I should say. It's done with public knowledge and approval. And typically the community knows who did it. People will admit to it or claim to have done it. That didn't happen in this case. And when it's done, there's usually enough people to haul the person's body up into the tree or up onto the utility pole or whatever they're being hung from so everyone can see it. In the case of uh, George Tompkins, he was tied to, and the newspaper even calls it a sapling, but the tree was so small that it couldn't support his weight and was bent over with his body weight. And had he just stood up, he would have relieved the tension off the rope to uh, keep from suffocating. And the, the newspapers described that his hands were loosely tied behind his back. Um, he had, the autopsy showed he had no markings on his body other than the rope marks around his neck. Um, his clothes were not necessarily dirty, but they were described as being disheveled. Um, 
in no other justification and no other rationale, no other reasoning other than he had been hung. And I think the death certificate said that he died from strangulation, which would make sense. That's what the rule caused. And the death certificate originally was made out and it said um, cause of death was undetermined. And within a week, the coroner, the deputy coroner filled out the uh, death certificate. Within a week, the coroner went back and changed the death certificate. And you can see where he clearly scratched out undetermined and penciled in suicide. Oh. And uh. for 100 years, his death was carried as a suicide. And in March of 2022, just a few months ago, the current Marion County coroner, after reviewing the evidence that several people had gathered together and went to the prosecutor's, not excuse me, the prosecutor, the coroner's office and questioned the original death certificate, a new death certificate was issued and his death is now classified as a homicide. And it now totally fits into the description of a lynching as the Equal Justice Initiative in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, maintains a list of more than 4,000 lynchings in the United States between 1877 and 19, I want to say 1965, but don't quote me on that date. But in that time period, they said there's more than 4,000 lynchings in the United States. And now George Tompkins is another one of those. In fact, I think he was in some of their literature before this, but having his death certificate changed finally, you know, cemented the fact that yes, he was lynched. Uh, there was no way to explain it. How you tie your hand behind your back, get a short piece of rope, tie it around your neck, tie it to a tree that will not support your weight, and then sit down. And well, I know slowly strangle. I know that in America, uh, black women and children were lynched. Oh, were there any yes. women or children lynched in Indiana? To my knowledge, no. But I. I'm not totally done with the research. I don't know of any. There have been several women that were lynched. Um, probably the most notorious lynching of a woman took place, I believe it was in Alabama. Her name was Mary Turner. Yeah. It would have been about 1911. Mary Turner's husband got in a dispute. He was a sharecropper, got into a dispute with the property owner about uh, what he was due to be paid and what work was required to, left to be done. And he and this white farmer got into a heated argument. And later the white farmer turned up dead. They blamed it on Mary Turner's husband. He said he didn't do it. Um, farmers from the town gathered and uh, they lynched uh, Mary Turner's husband. Mary Turner was eight or nine months pregnant. And in her excitement, she swore that she was gonna go to the sheriff and have them all arrested. And Mary Turner herself, became a victim of a lynching behind that comment. Um, Mary Turner was stripped of her clothes, beaten, hung by her ankles, doused with kerosene, ignited, and in somewhere in the process, a farmer produced a large knife and cut her abdomen open and the baby fell from her abdomen and hit the ground. And uh, the shock of hitting the ground caused the child to try to cry and someone in the crowd stomped the child, stomped the child to death. Yeah. That is probably the most gruesome, the most ghoulish lynching that I have read about in the United States. Well, the voice you just heard is 
is Leon Bates, who is a PhD student in the Department of Pan-African Studies at the University of Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, his area of focus is on urban history, uh, that entailing um, education, housing, labor, medicine, policing, and violence. And he also focuses on the intersection of race. And that graphic uh, depiction that he just shared, um, from all accounts, and, and I would not debate it, that was probably the most gruesome occurrence of a lynching in America. But I also recall, uh, Leon, that um, lynchings with the mob and whatever took on more of a festive um, uh, a celebration or a festive gathering where people would picnic. Yes. Um, and then yes. to add insult to injury, uh, would take body parts off of the victim. Yes, that is also true. And I heard an account, and this may not have occurred in Indiana, but I heard an account that, uh, and I even saw, it was a documentary. And um, because I don't remember the state, I just don't want to arbitrarily call out the state, but those parts from the body of the victim were kept in the family for generations as this sort of morbid uh, memento of, um, look what we did in our county. Um, yes. I cannot say that, you know, taking and, and keeping body parts happened in Indiana. I can't say it did or did not happen. But what I can say is that the image that most of us are familiar with of Ship and Smith, that was taken by a photographer who took that image and turned it into a postcard. And then people would send these postcards back and forth to one another about the different lynchings. And finally, the United States Postal Service refused to deliver them. If you put a stamp on that thing, you could put it in the mail with the image on one side and your little uh, message on the other, and the post office would deliver it. The post office finally said they would no longer deliver those. If you put it in the mail, they would destroy it. They would not even return it to you. And that kind of uh, put some of a damper on some of that kind of activity, taking the photographs and using it for postcards. But that is how and why that image is so well known and so widely circulated. As far as the body parts, one of the most notorious or infamous stories comes from W.E.B. Du Bois himself, who was in Atlanta during the Atlanta riot, I think in 1907. And Du Bois witnessed some of the violence before he got off the street and was able to hide in a house until the violence subsided. And then a few days later, he was going through downtown Atlanta in a store, a shop, and I forgot now what kind of a shop it was, but it had the plate glass windows like many of the shops do. They had the knuckles of one of the victims of the riot on display in the window of the store. And Du Bois clearly uh, wrote it down and put it in one of his uh, one of his uh, articles in the uh, Crisis Magazine, if I remember correctly. But he also published it in one of his uh, other journal articles where he described the violence in Atlanta and what that was like and what it was to actually experience it. And other cities had the same issue where body parts, and that's a very common problem. Uh, another graphic description of that, it was very common when African-American men were lynched to actually cut off the male genitalia. Uh, it, that's why a lot of photographs, when you see them, you see the African-American men being hung by their neck and they don't have any pants on. And the reason they don't have any pants on is that someone held them down and took a knife and cut their genitalia off. Or they I were can't... burned, uh, or they were they were burned almost indescribably. They were just that's another thing that would happen is that they were burned indescribably. And 
you know, when we talk about lynchings and they were so public, up until the 1930s, the state or the federal government executed people in public. And the last public execution that I'm aware of in Indiana took place in Indianapolis in the 1930s. A man was hung by the federal government at the Marion County Jail for shooting and killing a uh, police officer doing a bank robbery. He was captured in Ohio, but he committed the robbery in Indiana. And he stood trial in the federal court downtown Indianapolis. And the federal courts, uh, for the most part, didn't have, our federal prisons didn't have facilities to execute people. So it was done at the local level. So the Marion County Sheriff, at that time, they had a wall around the jail where that new bus terminal is across from the city county building today. Mm -hmm. That's where the jail used to stand. And they had a wall around, a stone wall around it. So they could actually conduct this execution and not have the spectacle of all the spectators wanting to see it happen. Even though people did show up and were on the roof of buildings around it and looking at it and things like that, they tried to actually have it, you know, in private or out of the, the public eye. Um, there's another case from 1912 in Georgia where they did this and they put a fence up around a little, made a little courtyard to do this, but the fence area was in a low spot and there were hills on three sides and people filled the hills. And yes, they brought picnic lunches and a lot of them brought their kids and they sat there and waited and watched um, the prisoners to be executed in the, I believe that town was Cumming, Georgia, which is north of Atlanta. And Cumming is an all-white community today because the African-Americans were driven out in 1911, 1912 behind the accusations that an African-American man had raped a white woman. It was never totally proven who did it, but the suspicions fell on the black community as a whole. And the whole entire community in that county was driven out in one or two nights. And uh, the interesting thing about that is that when you go to search those property records, you can clearly see where a large amount of property was transferred in the next few years behind that 1912 incident, but you can't get clear title to the property because the owners are not present to sign the property over, but the county needed the records over to these people. But back to the lynching on that, the people, they, those folks were not lynched in the end that we're talking about. They were put on trial in a type of Southern justice, convicted and um, executed in a public spectacle. And people were selling photographs, they were selling uh, hot dogs, lemonade, you name it, to watch this spectacle go on. And uh, it was those kind of things that finally drove the federal government to move executions inside and the state governments not long after that started you know following suit because they were becoming just pure spectacles of people coming out to see them but probably the most notorious one to indiana would be in owensboro kentucky um a man was lynched not lynched excuse me he was hanged there and there's a very well-known photograph of it and there are thousands of people in the crowd standing around trying to see this man put on the gallows um to be executed and it just became, you know, a public spectacle. There were trains that were chartered, not just cars, whole trains chartered to bring people into Owensboro to watch this man be hanged. And of course, the gallows is up high enough, it's over everyone's head. So you could see from a long distance what was about to be done. Um, these kind of things are not popular to talk about anymore. Uh, people don't want to admit to it. Some people even deny it until you bring out the old newspapers and say, yeah, well, the local newspaper covered it. And now the local newspapers, but other newspapers 
you know, from the region picked it up and carried it as well. So you can't really deny it anymore. It, it's it's known, but it was uh, horrific for me. Was to see uh, how they how it was made uh, into like a festival like carnival like atmosphere, yes. and you had small children there, um, and then to burn a human being with and having children. You know, can you imagine the smell of flesh burning? I can't remember what year it was. Um, where it was it Texas that they tied a black man and drug him through up and down the street? James Bird. Yeah, James Bird was, was tied to 80s? a pickup truck. Uh, it was in the eighties or nineties. He was tied to a pickup. Yeah, like in the, maybe it was in the nineties. And dragged through a small town in Texas, and parts of his body came off in the dragging process. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that wasn't that long ago. No. That was within recent memory. So would that be considered lynching? Um, I think so, because there were more than uh, two people involved in that, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. Those mm -hmm. those three or four guys got together, and they tied Bird's hands and then tied the chain around his neck, hooked it to the bumper of the truck, and then dragged him through town. And I can't remember what was the reason for that. Had he said hi to a white woman or something? I don't remember what he had done, but if I remember correctly, James Byrd was a Vietnam veteran, if I remember correctly, and he was suffering uh, PTSD. He had struggled with uh, alcohol and drug dependency. He was down on his luck. Uh, he was known to be fairly harmless for the most part, but whatever it was, and it didn't take much to get this group of white men agitated or excited, or maybe they just thought it would be, you know, big fun. And that's another part of this is with a lot of these incidents, people thought it was it was entertainment to go to the black neighborhood, you know, and shoot at houses, to chase African-Americans down the street. It was, you know, a Saturday night, you know, idea of fun. And lynching was the same thing. And it was just oftentimes once they got started, you know, we had a great time. And that's why you see so many times people not hiding their face when they are being photographed. And at Marion lynching, there is almost center screen, a young girl, she is a teenager. I don't think she's 20 years old. Who's looking back at the camera, you know, with kind of a, almost uh kind of gleeful um i don't want to say gleeful but it's like she was untroubled you know it was no big deal um then possibly even gleeful of, of what she was about to witness or what she had just witnessed you know i i look back on that incident and and that's been sort of analyzed and books have been written about it one account i recall from a presenter was that when it was James Cameron's turn, Ship and uh, Smith had already met their fate, unfortunately. But hands were put on him, the rope was put around his neck, and then all of a sudden a voice said, not him. That and was what, what Cameron is alleged to have said he heard, is that someone said not him to you know, let him go, and he was allowed to go back into the jail, and then later went through the criminal justice process and was uh, convicted, as you say, and served several years and then left Indiana after it was over with. But that is what Cameron is, is less to have said, is that he heard a voice that said, not him, let him go. And that's and the only thing he said that saved his life. And then I look, you mentioned earlier, because Liz, you asked the question I was burning to ask, um, were families lynched? Um, uh, yes. Were children, the ultimate, were children lynched and then were families lynched? <laughs> yes. And and you had answered that earlier, and and it's sickening, it's it's horrifying, 
but again, it was a form of either vigilante justice, and it may have been a stretch, but if it fit certain categories, then yeah, it was vigilante justice. It was psychological terrorism, um, mm -hmm. and, and it was a means by which to silence or control through fear of coercion or, 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 or bodily harm communities yeah. of people. Yes, and if you think about it, once the lynching, the initial lynching is over, oftentimes, the friends and relatives were not allowed to claim the body. The body was left hanging in the tree in some places in the downtown areas, hanging from a pole for days for everyone to see. And you were told un, under no circumstances were you to take that body down. Yeah. It had to be left there for days. And then finally you were allowed to get it down and, and bury it. And that was another common practice is once they did it, they defied anyone to take it down. When um, that when, is just unimaginable to think about, you know, you know or you see a relative, but you can't go claim their body to uh, to try and and give them a decent a decent burial. And you got people there, and they're hanging for days or a week. When mm -hmm. Emmett Till was murdered, it took a long time for them to uh, to claim the body because they had buried the body down no, because, in money. Mississippi. Emmett Till they weren't going to ship that body back. No, Emmett Till was thrown did. in the river for several days and yeah. then gotten out and yeah. eventually, you know, was shipped back. And you're right, it took better than a week for his body to get back. You can imagine the condition his yeah. body was in when it finally they got shipped back. it back with the yeah. promise that they weren't supposed to open that casket. Yes. And the mother said, we're going to open that casket. And they tried to stop her and they said, uh-uh, who's going to stop me? Because yes. they had promised it, well, we'll ship it, but you're not to open it. When she got mm -hmm. it back, she said, well, I'm going to open it. Yes, he's murdered in Mississippi. I'm going to let the world see. They, he was murdered in Mississippi, but they shipped his body home to Chicago. Yeah. And once his mother had him back in Chicago, she said she wasn't in Mississippi. And the coffin, from my understanding, was a wooden coffin and it had been nailed shut. And yes. she got a hammer and she pried that coffin open. She did to see her son, and once she got it open and she saw it, she then allowed, I believe it was Jet Magazine, to photograph his body. Mm -hmm. And that is where those most infamous photographs come from, is that Emmett Till's mother had an idea what had happened, but she wanted to see her son, and they were at the funeral home, if I remember correctly, and they pried that coffin open and could see his body, and then he was photographed there and then photographed again at the funeral to show the damage done to his body, just what condition it was in when it was returned to her. But you're right, it came back with instructions not to open the uh, not to open the coffin. And that was because the people, once the initial incident died down, the people there became ashamed of what had happened, you know, and there was no way they could not ship his body home. Word had gotten out in town that a body had started to float up in the river and a child fishing saw it and then notified the authorities Word spread. There's a body. Who are the, who's missing? Emmett Till. They could not cover that up, and they did not want to discuss it. But it got out, and his mother and pe Emmett Till's mother was condemned. She was condemned in both the black and the white community for doing that. Yes. Um, people thought it was wrong. It was sacrilegious. But Emmett Till's mother said, "No, the world needs to see what they have done to my son." And she allowed Jet Magazine to put those 
photographs in the uh, magazine. And although many newspapers carried the article original or they carried the story originally, they didn't have the photographs. If you wanted to see those photographs, you had to go find a Jet magazine to see the photographs. And it wasn't until many years later that those photographs started to show up in, uh, in newspapers and journals in the white community. And then the white community became shocked at just what he looked like. It's one thing to hear, it's another thing to see it. Um, and when you see some of these photographs, and when I first started doing this and I read and saw some of these, these stories, these incidents, um, I can remember sitting in a library, looking at the microfilm reader and just having a sense of rage start to come over me. And then I said, you know, wait a minute, you know better, you know what time period we're talking about. You know what it is you're, you're reading, get over it and go back to reading. And I have since learned to just turn the emotion off. I mean, I'm not bothered like a lot of people when I read these things and see them, don't get me wrong, I am bothered, but I'm not bothered like other people just, I just can't read that. Um, I think we have to read it. We have to know. We have to look at these pictures. We have to bear witness to what has been done because there are people who are still trying to say that these kind of things didn't happen. It wasn't as bad. People say it is. Uh, there are people who still have this idea and then they spread this myth of the happy slave and how slavery wasn't that bad. One of the most infamous pictures from the Civil War era is from a enslaved man from Mississippi, I believe it was, and his name was Gordon. And we don't even know Gordon's last name, but it's the photograph that we've all seen with that dark complected African-American man with the raised scars on his back where he was beaten. And most of us start thinking about it. Like, I've seen that photograph. Yes. Most oh, everyone yeah. has seen it now. And that is exactly why the Union Army took that photograph was to show people how bad it was because people still kept trying to say it was not that bad. And today people will tell you, oh, it wasn't that bad, you know, and, and the slaves were happy and, and all these kind of things. And it was in all reality, very brutal. Um, and I hesitate to use the word evil because evil allows you to think or to feel that it wasn't my fault or it wasn't their fault. They were influenced by a malevolent spirit or malevolent idea or whatever type of religious um, descriptor you want to put on this. So I always am very hesitant to use evil because I don't think it was evil. Now we can call it just plain mean as hell because you know that implies the person that did it just did it out of pure meanness. They knew what they were doing was wrong, that what they were doing was cruel. And when you read some of these accounts of some of these lynchings, the white man that was lynched in the 1850s in Northern Indiana, one of the participants in that lynching later wrote a book about it. And the man was a practicing attorney, I found out. And I had no idea when I first started reading about him that the man who wrote the story was a practicing attorney. He of all people knew better, but he participated in a spectacle vigilante murder of another human being. And the man was hanged on the town square because he had repeatedly stolen horses, harnesses, saddles, plows, uh, food, cattle. But I never saw where he had physically hurt anyone else. In other words, he had not killed anyone. 
He had not robbed anyone at gunpoint. He had not beaten anyone. But they, and he was working with a group of other men. And the whole point of doing this, when they didn't catch the other man, they caught him. But to make an example of him and to all others, they hanged this man on the town square. And one of the local attorneys was in the middle of it and then wrote a story about it. And not a single person was held to account for what happened in that county on that day. You, you know, as, we, as we're coming to the close of a very uh, uh, intriguing conversation, there's one thing that came to mind as you were sharing these accounts. I think of Billie Holiday singing Strange Fruit. Mm-hmm. And I think of that iconic sign that's hanging from a window in New York that says another black man was lynched today. Mm-hmm. And then I think of the work of Ida B. Wells, Barnett, and her anti-lynching legislation. There's, there's an account of the law that she acted, that she wanted to get enacted. And it reads, violence in, de- in defining lynching. Violence in which a mob, under the pretext of administering justice without trial, executes a pres- presumed offender, often after inflicting torture and corporal mutilation. Mm-hmm. And I think of that history. I think of from whence we come. But now I hear some politicians saying, we need an Emmett Till moment to make sure that these gun legislations that are being proposed gets, get passed. Show America what an AR-15 will do to human flesh. And you make it the same reaction, the same reaction that you saw when that open coffin with Emmett Till. Uh, Some say that that sparked the flame under people like Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, and then you get sort of what counts are really true, but it did something. Yes. And when you hear people talk about that, the point they're trying to make is what you just said, to shock the average person off the sofa and up on their feet to do something, to ask, you know, why. And we're talking about now the Uvalde shooting where those 19 children were gunned down a few weeks ago in Texas. and that came on the news and my wife and I were, I think sitting in the bedroom watching television and um, they were talking about doing, a, they couldn't identify the children, having trouble identifying the children. And yes. they were asking for DNA. And long before they announced it, I told my wife, I said, they can't recognize the kids. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, I've served in the military. In fact, one of the things I did was I was a part of the Indiana National Guard marksmanship team at one time when I got out of the Red Army, came back to Indiana, and I was an expert with several different weapons, but at the same time, I also learned what those weapons could do. And I told my wife, you just don't understand the damage that that weapon can do. And I said, oftentimes it's the exit wound where you really see the damage. The entrance wound, it's a 22 caliber bullet. It doesn't make a very big hole going in, but going out the other side is there is tremendous damage. And I said, you just can't imagine. I said, but what happened is some of those kids were shot in the head and there's not enough of their face left to identify. And I know that's gruesome when I say that. But if you think back to the interview that Matthew McConaughey gave on TV a few weeks ago or a few days ago, and they had a pair of green Converse high top tennis shoes that one of the girls they said was wearing and that's how they identified her. That's the point Matthew McConaughey was, was making without saying what I just said was that they couldn't recognize that child. So now the debate becomes, if you show these children and what kind of damage was done to them, 
as one of the mothers from the Sandy Hook shooting said, someone approached her about that when Sandy Hook happened 10 years ago. And she said she couldn't do it. And she said the reason she couldn't do it was that she did not want to remember her child that way. Right. And that she knew once those photographs were in the public domain, there was no getting them back and that she would forever be seeing these photographs and that people would be handing them around. And there would be people who would deny it and say, Hollywood made that up, you know, and it's not real. And she's probably telling the truth. And she said she just could not do it. But she said she would not condemn someone else if they wanted to do it. She said it was just not in her. And that's the difference between that mother and many of the others. And Emmett Till's mother, who finally said, you know, she wanted the world to see right. what this looks like. And that's what we're talking about. What does this kind of damage look like? And I've started telling people when I talk about these kind of things that people are lynched by a mob. But at the same time, society lynches people when something doesn't, it's not done. And society, as in the case of George Tompkins, um, covers it up or just makes it appear to look differently. Because once the Marion County coroner decided that George Tompkins' death was a suicide, the police stopped investigating. The prosecutor, you know, closed the books on it and they moved on. It's a suicide in the discussion. If it was left open as a homicide, excuse me, it can really start to grow and become a much bigger problem to deal with. And you get into the fact that oftentimes, like in the case of Schiff and Smith, the police did not participate in that, that murder, but they allowed it to happen. On that note, and simply means we have to have you come back. Our thanks to uh, PhD student researcher Leon Bates for joining us to discuss his findings on the horrific practice of lynchings, not just in Indiana, but around the country and the mindset that goes into that horrible, horrible practice. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is Bring It On at wfhb.org. And Bring It On's ex executive producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone's ninth assistant producers, Liz Mitchell, show consultant, WFHB News Department Director is Kate Young. Program engineer Chantal LaFontant. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Ephraim with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Liz Mitchell. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. 